Good morning. Y'all look real nice today. It's almost like you'd planned to come to church, and that's a good thing. Lord, your word is uh, amazing, and it is complex at times, and yet at the same time, it's really simple. It's very straightforward. Father, we struggle on Sunday mornings to try to strike a balance between some of the deeper meanings and not losing the simplicity of the message of salvation. And so, Father, we pray today that you, as, as always, um, win the battle of uh, the interpretation of your gospel because your Holy Spirit, God, is so powerful. Father, so I pray in advance, if there are some here that do not know you or Maybe they know very little about you. I don't, I don't know, but God, that you will just uh, convey your truth to them in a bold way and um, just flooded with love. And we trust you in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, we're in Luke, <laughs> and this is the third part of what was supposed to be a one-part series on the parable of the nobleman. And uh, the more I study these things, the more difficult it is for me not to kind of go full bore into a history lesson at, at times. And I, by the way, I, I didn't do that very well a couple of weeks ago. We just had a kind of a Roman history. Um, but there's so much in this parable, you could literally spend months on this parable alone. So we think we're going to close this today. And um, you can pray about that. As a matter, that'd be a good prayer for you. So this is our third week in this particular scripture reference, uh, Luke 19, beginning with uh, verse uh, 11. And uh, so, just a, a little bit of, of of a kind of a capsulation of what we've studied. This won't take long to, to get us into the into the true lesson here, but uh, we made. Through the first two verses of the parable last week, which was Luke nineteen eleven and 12. And it says this, as they heard these things, and you can go back and see what he's talking about. You know, when they say something like, as they heard these things, it's always good to go back about seven or eight more verses. And then you'll see what he's talking about. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, Jesus knew at this time uh, that this was nearing the end of how they would view him. This is nearing the end of his earthly life. And he was placing into the hands of the twelve ordinary and div but divinely chosen men the gospel of salvation. And none of them were um, graduates. I mean, Luke uh, was a, a physician. But none of them were Pharisees or none of them had gone to Pharisee school or Sadducee school or anything like that. They're just common people. That's one of the criticisms that Jesus got wherever he went. He said, you know, these are these people are just, you know, common people. And uh, they're following this guy around. And by the way, he's only a carpenter's son. Well, it was apparent to Jesus that his, his apostles had not comprehended what the kingdom of God really meant. We've talked about that a lot. So he chose this parable to dramatically lay out exactly what was going to happen, not only in the near future, but in eternity as well. So Luke 19.12 said this then. He said, Therefore a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then returned. 
And we see here in the first two verses of this parable that Jesus was setting the stage for a devastating prophecy. Now, they didn't know that. And in all honesty, a lot of us would read this scripture and we would not perhaps pick up on the full meaning of everything that's taking place here. But these first two verses that he says, he's setting up, he's setting the stage for this prophecy that's going to take them from where they are into the kingdom of God as in what we would call heaven. And he's going to do it in just a few verses. So, point number one, and there was no room to put on the scripture sheet these points, and I'm sorry about that. But point number one is a little bit about our review, and that is Jesus receives his kingdom. And we we covered that last week. We also covered last week how we realized that he had received his kingdom And that this was a very important step because Jesus was all three prophet, priest, and was going to become king. The only person in the world, past, present, future, that ever held all three of these offices. Now we see in, you know, prior to this parable, we see him as the prophet and we see him as the priest. If you want to read about the priest, go to Hebrews. It's an excellent book, and it really centers around Jesus Christ becoming the priest. But he had not yet been coronated king. So last week, we spent a little bit of time on how we knew that he was going to be king. Scripturally, I have two scriptures for you, maybe three, maybe 30, I don't know. Mark 16, 19. This is what we looked at last week. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, and this took place after his resurrection, and he was with them for a short time. And this is the last thing he says to them before he's taken up into heaven. So then the Lord Jesus, after he'd spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And we talked about what that meant. Seat of power, seat of honor. And we recognize that these apostles saw this from the earthly point of view. Suddenly he was speaking to them and suddenly he was caught up into the clouds And we wonder, well, what happened after that? And there's this glorious scripture that tells us what happened after that. Daniel had a vision. And this is what his vision said. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man, meaning Jesus, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient One and was led into His presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey Him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. So in Mark, we have the earth, the, the earthly view of Jesus departing. And in Daniel, we have the heavenly view that after He departed, in a split second, Daniel had a vision that showed Him coming into heaven and he described that. It's beautiful. It's majestic. And then we read in Revelation 19, 11 and 15 that the next time we see Jesus, it's going to be this way. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems, meaning jewels. And he was He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name uh, which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a, a sharp sword with which... 
to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the reason that is so important is because he is about to be coronated going into Jerusalem as the King of Peace and humility riding upon a donkey. See, that's how we know Jesus right now. And by the way, that is still who Jesus is to us right now. But there will come a time when he returns. He will not be that. He will be king of king, lord of lords, riding on his steed with a sharp sword, his robe drenched in blood, and he comes back as the coronated king of all things. So that's what, we, that's what we discovered last week. That's what we talked about last week. So with that in mind, let's read once again the Scriptures that we've read for three weeks. Luke nineteen eleven through 24. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, let me interrupt just for a minute. And this harkens back to enrollment history. Some of you have been here for three or four weeks in a row. will remember this this, Archelaus, who is Herod the Great's son, inherited Herod the Great's kingdom and had to go to Rome to officially be coronated as the king. And and the Jews hated the Herods so much because they had been so brutal. Remember, Archelaus, (laughs) Archelaus tendon, I don't know, that's what I think of. Archelaus massacred 3,000 people because they had a riot. And so the Jews, the priests, and they, they send a delegation and they say, we do not want this man to be over us. We hate this man. And they send a delegation to give that message. And Archelaus came back and crucified 2,000 more. So this is fresh in the memory and in the history of these people that Jesus is giving this parable to. And I can't help but think that some of these people would go, wait a minute, this kind of rings a bell. His citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina was made, has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas, meaning more. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, meaning Jesus, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man. The implication is, did you? Did you know that? Because that's what you're telling me. 
taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And then he said to those who stood by, undoubtedly some priests and Pharisees, Sadducees, take the miner from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. And I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And those are really politically incorrect words. I would say that much of the population of the world today in, quote, organized and intellectually um, um, affluent people, the United States being the most, would say, if you say that in public as a true warning, we are going to arrest you. We are going to take you out. So the first lesson is Jesus receives his kingdom. And the second lesson we're going to study today is Jesus offers opportunities. We learn in our story that before he left on his journey, he identified ten servants with whom we would he would entrust his business. You know, the number ten, it's a number ten. But the interesting thing is, is when it came to the talents and the virgins, there were ten also. We don't know... So we're not going to waste time on it. I'm sure when we get to heaven, the guy's going to say, ten's not all that important now that you're here. Calling ten servants, he gave them ten minas and, lay, and, and said to them, engage in business until I come. Now, this makes perfect sense. If you are the CEO of a company and you're going to be out of pocket. Now, remember, he says, this man went on a long journey. Why would he say long journey? Because it, it symbolizes he's going to be gone a long time. He's not going away for a week and coming back and doing business and then going away for another two weeks and flying back and doing business. The man in this, in this parable says the nobleman is on a long, long journey. So he calls ten servants together and gives them ten minas each. And he says, do business with this. Now, this is a pretty big deal, is it not? If you were one of those who was asked or tasked with keeping the business healthy while he was gone, would you not consider this an honor? Would you not consider this an opportunity? Would you not consider this a huge responsibility? Now, how you would perceive this will dictate directly how you would have responded. Just a little background on the value of the mina. At Answers.com, says, Among the Israelites, there were five main divisions of weights and money. Most of the things were designed by weight. The gareth, half-shekel, becca, shekel, mina, and talent. So the writings of the ancient Israel people indicates that the mina was worth 50 to 60 shekels and would be worth about $110 for a silver mina and $6,422 for a gold mina. 
My guess is that we would be more accurate if we assigned the lesser amount of $1,100 for 10 minor. Because later in the parable, it is mentioned, Jesus said, what you have done with little, I honor. So I think it's probably the silver. The plot thickens as we read the next scripture. Therefore, we are going to take some time with examining Christ's word choices. Verse 14, But his citizens hated him, and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. So a citizen in that time is the inhabitant of any city or country. If you go in and you find a plot of land and you take up residence there, even though you don't own that land, you are still a citizen of that land. Much has been said about immigrants and borders in, in, the, in the last couple or three years, which we're not going to touch upon, although I just did. But the point is, in that particular time, if you went and you lived, you know, a squatter, right? I'm going to find this piece of land that no one, I'm not going to tell anybody I'm going to be here. I'm just, I'm just going to squat here. Well, that would be a citizen. And in this particular case, citizenship is attached to anyone occupying space. So citizen described the population at large. The next word Jesus uses is hated. But his citizens hated him. It means to detest. They detested him. What do you think of? If someone comes up and says, I detest you. Now, there's a very famous Christmas movie that I won't name because I don't like promoting movies. But there's this one scene where this comical character says, I hate you. And he pulls another page around and he goes, you I loathe. That also means loathe. This word probably resonates with us more than hatred. To say you detest someone carries a little bit of a word picture. Detest means to feel intense and often violent antipathy. Antipathy means dislike. So to say you detest someone means, I hate you, I dislike you so much, I want to hit you. I know none of you have ever felt that way because we're all good Christians. Even in your past, right? (laughs) We can certainly see that these words were chosen carefully by Jesus... His own citizens or people would indeed rise up with violent antipathy, wouldn't they? In a few days, they're going to do that. They're going to be against him in mere days from his telling of this parable. Even the word delegation is significant in that it pinpoints who would be involved in the group of people who would go to the Herodians, the Herods, and Romans to demand his death. The word for delegation is presbya. It means age, dignity, and this is a kind of business normally entrusted to elders, specifically the office of an ambassador or an embassy. Why is that so important? He says, you're going to send the leaders of Israel to Herod, formally demanding. In other words, this is not an uprising. This is a calculated attack against the Son of God. And the highest of the high and the wisest of the wise, according to worldly standards, was at the center of this. So the purpose for forming a delegation was to short-circuit the nobleman's coronation as king. 
which is what the Jews did on Archelaus before he could be crowned king. All of this is coming together. I mean, it should be coming together. Luke 19, 14. We do not want this man to reign over us. The word reign means to be king or exercise kingly power. Now, what's the difference between a nobleman and a king? A nobleman has a title primarily because of what he owns and from whom he was born. The king has authority. We do not want this man to to reign over us. The same word, by the way, is used when referring to the rule of the Messiah in Scripture and the reign of Christians in the millennium. We do not want you, Jesus, to reign over us as we will reign in the millennium. So if you've been present during this parable, this is how you would have heard verse 14 in the original language. I don't speak Greek, so don't worry about that. This is what it would have sounded like. But the people who inhabited his country detested him to the point of being willing to attack him. So they went to the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and chief priests of their country and asked them to form a committee to officially protest this man becoming their king and exercising his authority over them. That's how it would have read. It's all very formal. Went to the highest power they could find. So number one, Jesus receives his kingdom. Number two, Jesus offers opportunities. He talked to those servants. So here are the ten minus. And number three, Jesus demands an accounting. Luke 19.15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him what they had gained by doing business. Now, as a reminder, Jesus emphasizes the purpose of the nobleman leaving home and leaving some of his fortune with them while he was away. We find this in the last half of verse when Jesus says that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The nobleman had not forgotten, even if he had been gone a year or ten years, what he had left and with whom he had left it. And there was a reason he left it, so they could invest, so his kingdom would expand. And he would not lose ground just because he was gone. Who can I entrust my kingdom to? I have ten servants I'm going to trust. Bring them before me. Ten minus, ten minus, ten minus. Invest it. I'll be back. And I can't wait to see what you did with it. The accounting begins in Luke 19.16. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done. Does this sound familiar? When Jesus returned to heaven, well done, good and faithful servant. He says, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. You've been faithful with three months wages. And I'm going to let you rule over ten cities in my kingdom. It's a pretty amazing return. The first servant had a 100% return on the nobleman's resources. 
The servant had been given the equivalent of about three months' wages, and in return for this faithfulness and hard work, he is now going to have authority over ten cities. Verse 18, And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. The second fellow had a 50% return. That's a good return in case you ever invest. Thus he is rewarded appropriately. Now this makes sense, does it not? Not all people have the same gifts or abilities or opportunities. There are multiple reasons for this. Some are born with a natural understanding of math. I am not one of those fellows, by the way. Others are born with incredible physical abilities, and yet others have been gifted with compassion and mercy for those who are less fortunate. And there are many others we could talk about. Still, others are born within families who have earned or inherited great wealth and good business sense. There's a reason that dynasties continue on until someplace down the line, amidst all of those golden nuggets, you get a pebble. And they're greedy, and they're arrogant, and they're vicious, and they ruin the dynasty. You can see it even in families that you know right now. He says, you're going to rule over five cities. Luke 19.20 says this, And another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. Now, this is altogether a different story. We know that there were ten servants who received ten minas each. So far, we have heard from two of those servants who did the right thing. And now in verse 20, we hear from a third. We do not know what happened to the other seven, nor are we told that this third fellow was the last of the servants to be called upon. We just assume that. It may have been that he was a third to be called upon and the other seven ran. We don't know. What we do know about him is what he himself reveals. So let's look again at what the servant says to his new king, not just a nobleman. Now he's king. Another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. Now herein lies the first problem. One might say that the first problem for this fellow was that he didn't invest it. Actually, that's not his first problem. His first problem is that he did not, at the very least, bury it. The very least this servant should have done was to bury the ten minas entrusted to him in the nobleman's field for safekeeping. But this is not what he did. He says, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. Ten minas. I just carried it with me. It was common to bury treasures. Look through the New Testament. Look at God's parables. The second problem is that he did not accept responsibility for his inaction. Verse 21, for I was afraid of you. He immediately places a blame upon the nobleman by way of accusing him of being someone that should be feared. 
What had this nobleman done that created such fear within the servant? Well, we have the answer in the rest of the verse, but before we go there, can you think of another time that God was feared for no reason? Maybe the first time he was feared for no reason. Garden. Adam and Eve sinned, and they feared God. See, here's what happens. When we know we are guilty, we fear the authority to whom we are accountable. Right? That's what we do. Adam and Eve knew they were guilty. It did not have to be explained to them. And they feared the authority of the Lord who walked in the garden with them. They had an incredibly beautiful relationship. And one sin destroyed that relationship and turned it into fear. The servant is the same way. He knew he had sinned. He knew he was wrong. He said, I kept this money because I feared you. Proper question might have been, of course, it was unnecessary, or Jesus would have said, well, why do you fear me? The nobleman goes, why do you fear me? Well, he gives the answer, because you are a severe man. Now, what was it about the nobleman that created the impression from his servant that he was a severe man? Well, the word severe means exacting. and As a matter of fact, that's another word they use in another translation. It means harsh, rough, rigid. Then he goes on to make his accusation. accusation. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. The first accusation is that he is a severe man. You're harsh. You're rough. You're rigid. You're unbending. What you say goes. Second accusation is that he is a thief, a cheat when it comes to how he does business. He is unscrupulous and greedy and has an arrogant disposition toward those who are not as privileged of him as him. I was afraid of you because you were a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. Can you relate to this? And if you've been a believer for any length of time, it's more difficult to relate to this than if you don't know Jesus right now. Because I can almost assure you that those who do not know Jesus, that is how they see Him. Rigid. Rough. Harsh. Exacting. Why? Because you have to know Jesus to know His grace. The view that Jesus is narrow and intolerant. They view Him as judgmental, harsh, impossible to please. And concerning Christ's followers, they believe that we believe ourselves to be holier than thou and that we are intolerant of them because of their lifestyles and because they don't go to church. Now, by the way, if you fall into that, and that's true for you, you need to have a Jesus moment because that is not how we should view the, the lost. We should view the lost the same way Jesus views them. They're lost. But they believe we hate them. They believe we hate those who disagree with us. As for the servant, this third servant, he was an imposter. He may have been a citizen and even served on the nobleman's estate, but he was an imposter. He didn't belong there. He was unworthy to represent the nobleman. 
If you have received Christ and walked with Him for any length of time, you realize that He will never break His word. He is merciful and gracious and has provided a way for all who receive Him to enter into His kingdom without blemish. That's the Jesus we know. You can't know that Jesus without the Holy Spirit, and you can't know the Holy Spirit without receiving Jesus. That's why it's called faith. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and what? Certain of what we cannot see. Verse 22, he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words then. This is, this is just amazing. God says, you know, I'm not going to argue with you. This nobleman said, I'm, I'm not going to argue with you. It's just, it's, it's just worthless to argue with you. Because you've already made up your mind. You already decided what you were going to do. You did that. And now that I'm holding you to account, you have already lined up your defense. And no words are going to change your mind. Ever met anybody like that? No words are going to change your mind. He said, and then I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. Some have asked, I wonder if this guy was a believer. Obviously not. Jesus never calls one of his people an evil servant. Ever. This guy wasn't saved. That's why he was an imposter. And yet he was in authority. Sound familiar? You knew that I was a severe man, so you say, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Is that what you believe? Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? His own words condemned him. Within this parable, Jesus did not say that the nobleman defended himself. Why not? Because Jesus knew that this nobleman He knew who he was in the story. It was him. And I personally believe that this was an overshadowing, a foreshadowing of Christ before the council and Pilate in the 14th chapter of Mark. Really what the servant was saying, defend this. Defend this. And he just remained silent. That's, That's exactly what was going to happen to Jesus in three or four days. So he said the nobleman didn't defend himself. He didn't say it, but that's what he implies. The bottom line is that the nobleman knew that this servant would never change his mind based upon a worldly argument. This servant had a predisposed prejudice toward anyone who he believed to be better off than him. And friends, can I tell you, if you have a predisposed prejudice prejudice toward anyone who is better off than you, you're not thinking like Christ. And it creates more problems and more agony and more conflicts than almost anything else. The very fact that you may have more than I have, if I have this predisposed disposition, this disposition of prejudice then everything you say to me, I will say, well, that's easy for you to say. Right? You getting this? Because you have more. You don't know what it's like to really suffer. You don't know what it's like to really fall short and have pressure. That's what this servant was. I think he was predisposed to not like people that were wealthier than him more talented than him, healthier than him, in authority over him, happier than him, more successful than him. We used to live in a city 
that was filled with people um, who felt they were the best thing to arrive in a long time because they were so talented. And it was a it was a very difficult place to be because at, at some point, if you're if you go to this city, Nashville. And you think you have what it takes to be the next whomever. And it doesn't happen for you. You come to a come to Jesus moment pretty quickly. I can either be bitter. Or I can say thank you God for what I have. And I I just confess to you I was on both sides of that fence sometimes. But I'm going to give you a really good example of a guy. That had the epitome of a godly attitude. His first name is Stephen. His last name is Chapman. His middle name is Curtis. And everyone in the industry, when he got a record deal, said that was a mistake. As a matter of fact, the A&R guy went to the guy who signed him and said, that's a mistake. It happens. We're just going to fulfill one record deal and we get out of it. Think God had other plans? And if you were to talk with him, you know how he would describe his voice? Mediocre. See, that's the difference between someone's who, someone who harbors resentment because of someone else's success. It's a lonely place to be. That was this man. Jesus said, If you fearing me was truly the reason you did nothing with that which I gave you, then why did you do the very thing that would bring my harshest judgment upon you? Isn't that common sense? If you really feared me, you would have done whatever you could not to incur my wrath. The problem is, you are lazy. You are slothful. You don't care about anybody's kingdom but your kingdom. And there's a price to pay for that. The more Christ delays His return the more comfortable we become in this culture in which we live and the less we fear Him, so the less we do. Uh, Jesus left 2,000 years ago. I mean, He says He's going to be... I'm, I'm going to return quickly. Oh, He's on that journey. He's coronated. He's coming back. This parable is a blow-by-blow indictment upon non-believers and lazy believers alike. For the lost, there will come a time of accounting for the number of times you have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and yet refused Him. That will be taken into account. What excuse do you have standing before the King who has been coronated that you did not receive Him? And you know my guess? Many people will be arrogant and angry and swear at Him. Uh, That's if they have a chance to open their mouth. The refusal to receive Christ will bring a verdict that will translate into an eternity spent in the place of unbearable torment. For believers... There will come a time when we will give an account for the investments we have made or refused to make based upon the resources Christ has given us. Then we will be rewarded 
accordingly. Now, there are many different views as to what that looks like when you get into heaven. Some say there's going to be a, a really large projection screen, and you're going to stand there and watch everything you ever did, and here's the hard part, or thought. And it's going to be flashing before you all your failures. Some people believe that that will be a brief moment because the main thing is about rewards. And there are those who say that when I go before Christ as a believer, my sins are forgotten as far as the East is from the West. I believe in one of those three. I don't want to, I don't want to influence how you believe, what you believe. So you, you, you work through that on your own. But here it is. You come before the judgment seat of Christ. What is the judgment seat of Christ? It's called the Bema. B-E-M-A. Let me remind you of a couple of scriptures concerning the authority of Christ, keeping the Bema seat in mind. Isaiah 66, 1 says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where does God, where does Jesus reside? In heaven, and the earth is his what? Footstool. Luke twenty forty three. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The beam of seat of Christ does not determine salvation. That was determined by Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. These scriptures, by the way, are listed on your sheet. All these Bema Seat scriptures are listed. I thought you might find those interesting. And our faith in Him. So uh, Christ's sacrifice on our behalf and our faith in Him. All of our sins are forgiven and we will never be condemned for them. We should not look at the judgment seat of Christ as God judging our sins, but rather as God rewarding us for our lives. Yes, as the Bible says, we will have to give an account of ourselves. Part of this is surely answering for the sins we committed. However, that is not going to be the primary focus of the judgment seat of Christ. This comes from uh, gotquestions.org. It's a great website. You need to go there. At the Bema Seat of Christ, believers are rewarded based on how faithfully they have served Christ. Some of the things we might be judged on are how well we obeyed the Great Commission, how victorious we were over sin, and how well we controlled our tongues. Help me, Lord, right? The Bible speaks of believers receiving crowns for different things based upon how faithfully they served Christ. The various crowns are described in 2 Timothy uh, and the scriptures are there in your scripture sheet, is a good summary of how we should think about the judgment seat of Christ. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. The servant was an imposter, but yet he was in leadership. I think I would not want to be that person. See, every talent we have, every dime we have received, every opportunity that has been laid at our feet will be evaluated by how they were invested to further the kingdom of God. Write all the books you want, record all the music you want, don't mean nothing unless God ordained you to write those books and to record those songs and to speak and to serve your neighbors, and to bring a Bible study, and to carefully divide the Word of God so that in our zeal to, re to have people receive the kingdom of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, we do not offend them. 
I believe we are in the age of relational discipleship, relational evangelism. But don't let that deter you <laughs> from doing what you believe God's laying in your heart. So first, we receive the, uh, Jesus receives his kingdom. Secondly, Jesus offers opportunities. Third, Jesus demands an accounting. Finally, Jesus passes judgment. You know, generally speaking, most people, saved or not, do not really have a problem with what has been taught so far this morning. Because it's all way far away, we think. They may have a bit of a problem when we got to the Jesus demands an accounting phase. Nobody wants to go before a righteous king, especially an almighty God, and have him say, what did you do? What did you do? Well, I started this ministry and this ministry, but what did you do? I think one of the things is, have you read my book? What do you think? Have you read my book? Did you read my book while you were there? I hate that question. It's so confrontational. But there is still hope, you see, that this all-loving, all-gracious, all-grandfatherly type God will somehow override His Word in the end and say something like, Ah, oh, come on up, you big galoot. Come on. I can't turn you away. That's not God. This is not how this will go. 1924 says this, And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. And God says, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot that. How foolish of me. Spread it around. Spread it around. Don't, you know, take them from him. I'll leave him one. Because I am gracious and everything. And just spread it around over here. That's not what he says. Is it not amazing how grace becomes repulsive when righteous judgment is enacted? Here's the grace we want. Even though I am this you receive me. Even though I've done these things, you still love me. Even though I continue to live in sin, you still tolerate me. And all of that leads to the hope that I'm a big galoot, that God's going to say, oh, come on up, you big galoot. But this is where God exercises His grace many times. It's in an area we detest. What do you mean you're going to make that man richer? He's already rich. Where's the fairness in that? It's not fair. It's called grace. And by the way, there's a principle here. What have you done with the little you've had? And why would you expect God to give you more? See, I hate that one too. That's so confrontational with me. Especially I'm 64. And we have to retire sometime. Just so you know, if you see a big pile of dirt out in front of the shoemate home, we are digging a bunker in the backyard. Not because we're in fear of zombies, but because I feel I, we can probably live down there with just the, the basics if we don't have to pay rent and drive anyplace. So, so you're going, is he serious? Yeah. But, but see, this is, this is what it leads to. This is what it leads to. I don't want grace... If it's given to somebody else, I don't care about that grace. I want my grace. 
And God says, what have you invested? And this is his answer. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given. And from the one who has not, even that he has will be taken away. And we're going to close with this. Let's look at this on two different levels. A. Those who receive the gift of salvation will inherit heaven. Those of us who benefit from the grace of God exhibited through the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on earth will benefit. He will benefit from being in the kingdom that God has prepared for him. So whatever good you have here, my brothers and sisters, whatever good you have here, you just cannot imagine the good that's awaiting us. It's amazing. The second thing, letter B, those believers who invested in the kingdom of God for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ will receive rewards in heaven based upon their works of righteousness. I gave you 10 minus. You made 10 minus. You're over 10 cities. Who do you think rules in the millennium? Us. How many cities do you have? I'm hoping for a village. I'm hoping for anything. Because I know me. Do you know you? How many cities do we have? Those of you who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have no idea how God's grace has protected you to the point that you're still breathing. And those of you who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, this is your heaven. And Jesus says this, Those who have more, more will be given. Those who have little, even it will be taken away. This is the closest you get to Jesus. And enjoy it now. Because when Jesus Christ returns, even this will be taken away. Sobering, is it not? Verse 27, But as for these enemies of mine who did not want to give me reign over them... Bring them here and slaughter them before me. It's the great reckoning. This is a destiny of the lost. Those who refuse Jesus, those who lean upon their own understanding and in the final analysis and in the end are rejected by the nobleman of this parable who is, of course, Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then there are three people groups to which Christ refers in this parable. I am borrowing these names, these these titles from John MacArthur. He says they're the faithful, the people who invested, the false, the servant who said he was a servant and did not invest, and the foes. Truth is, all of humanity fits into one of these three categories. So my question is this as we close. What is your mina? What is your mina? What has God given you? What has He asked you to invest with?
What is competing with your mina in your life? What is stealing the mina from you? And although the parables couch the awards for financial faith, faithfulness in financial gain, the reward goes much further than this. The true reward is ruling with Christ in His kingdom. Where do you fit? Christ has and continues to give all believers opportunities. Christ will return and demand an accounting. Christ will pass judgment. This all begins with salvation. This sermon, except for one point, has nothing to do with people that don't know Jesus. Because this sermon says the accounting will be taken and depending upon your answer, then the rest of this begins to apply. And it all begins with salvation. Jesus has received his kingdom. He's offering you opportunities. He's going to demand an accounting. He's going to pass judgment. The only common sense, wise response to this is, Jesus, I receive you now. Beyond that, I can offer nothing. And I can't even offer that. You know what I mean. Lord Jesus, I just want to speak on behalf of the people that are in this room. And of course, you know the people this doesn't apply to, so we pray for them. God, thank you that in the midst of a world that is incredibly dark and vile and violent, that you sent your Son. That through one simple decision can lift us out of this quagmire of evil. For my brothers and sisters in this room, I pray this. If you have not already, sober up with what this means. And Lord, may we be faithful as we invest the talents you've given us, the wealth you've given us, the circumstances you've permitted us to live within. For your glory, not our own. For your glory, not our comfort. For your glory, not our fame. And Father, for those who do not know you, please, 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 break through whatever's there and just break their hearts that they can come to you. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. We'd love to pray with you, so feel free to come forward and pray. Blessings.